universe. You own a washer and dryer. You consult the tags on your clothes and follow their instructions carefully. Segregate dirty laundry by color and fabric and wash temperature. Whites versus colors, warm versus cold, dry clean only versus tumble dry low. Use a detergent that purports to be safer for the environment than its competitors. Your dryer sheets are hypoallergenic and chemical free. You drive a Toyota Prius and during idle moments at stoplights, internally debate whether your bumper stickers accurately reflect who you are as a person. One of your bumper stickers says, hypotenuses do it longer. Another says, my other car both exists and does not exist according to the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. In one universe, you are a cat person. You do not actually own cats, but nonetheless admire their reticence and autonomous spirits. Your neighbors are dog people whose four massive German shepherds bark incessantly day and night in the backyard, prompting you to purchase an expensive ultrasonic device that looks like the bastard kin of a megaphone and a blow dryer. The device has no noticeable effect on the dogs, but it does make nearby squirrels fall from trees and power lines. You read the device's manual, and it says, individual results may vary. In one universe, you are married to a voiceover man. Though your husband is a committed homebody, his voice is everywhere, at the movies, on the TVs of doctors and dentists' offices, on the pre-flight safety videos of minor regional airlines, on the car radio during morning drives. Your husband records his voiceovers in a home studio adjacent to your bedroom, and despite the studio's soundproofing, you can faintly hear his performances of film trailers, TV promos, and radio ads as you read your gossip magazines and scroll through pictures of animals wearing human clothing on Facebook. Stars without makeup, say the magazines. Year of the cleanse. Yes, she's pregnant. Why they can't find love. For a limited time only, says your husband, muffled through the wall. Coming this fall, 2.9% APR financing. Lewis and Clark are back. And this time, it's personal. actually own dogs, but are asked whether you're a dog or cat person while creating an online dating profile, and dog person just feels right. You are asked to supply basic demographic information, and emboldened by the counterfactual possibilities afforded by the internet, you shave off a few driftless years and convert your annual salary to its equivalent in kroner and 
broaden the definition of the word athletic and say you're six foot seven because what's an extra 17 inches between strangers? You are asked what you're good at, what you read, watch, listen to, what you're looking for, and what you're not. You are asked to provide a self-summary, and you copy and paste the Wikipedia article for Amelia Earhart. You are asked what you're doing with your life, and the amount of time it takes you to craft an answer makes you sad. You are asked what people notice about you, what you do on a typical Friday, what you could never do without. Your profile picture was taken two years ago at your best friend's wedding reception at a country club in suburban Minnesota. The open bar was stationed on the banks of a water hazard, and you spent the majority of the reception flirting with the cute bartender over all-you-can-drink Merlot in Manhattans until the bartender excused himself to a sand trap for a smoke break, and you wandered into a storage shed to pass out in the driver's seat of a parked golf cart. In the picture, you are only one and a half Manhattans in, however. You are smiling. You are confident. You are standing upright. You are looking your best. You are asked to supply a favorite quote, and you choose a Guns N' Roses lyric, but attribute it to Mahatma Gandhi. Where do we go now, says the Mahatma Gandhiji, father of the Hindu nation. Where do we go, sweet child of mine? You are still in high school. You date a senior who wears a black leather jacket and stores packs of Lucky Strikes in his shirt sleeve and slicks his hair with brill cream. Your classmates spontaneously break into song and dance several times a day with perfect harmonies and elaborate choreography at school, the local diner, the post office, Dead Man's Curve. After three or four minutes, they always abruptly stop singing and dancing and return nonchalantly to their previous activities, but this never strikes you as odd or unsettling. Your boyfriend's name is Duck, and this never strikes you as odd or unsettling either. In one universe, you live on a Cuban dead end in Miami. You part-time at a Dateland cosmetics kiosk and possess a modest familiarity with Spanish and share a half-duplex with your band, Schrodinger's Cat Stevens, who play punk rock extremely quietly because otherwise the neighbors complain. Your neighbors have mango and avocado trees and four gigantic dogs that make uncredited and unwanted appearances on every home recording in your discography, and a towering anemone-like cactus called a queen of the night, with beautiful white flowers that blossom only one evening a year. You have a washer, a dryer, and a Ford Taurus riddled with contradicting bumper stickers. Bush Cheney versus Carrie Edwards, Life Begins at Conception versus Keep Your Laws Off My Body, Clapton is God versus I'm a Believer. 
you play bass guitar in Schrodinger's Cat Stevens and also sing backup vocals. One of your duplex mates sings lead and plays guitar, and the other plays half-broken thrift store synthesizers and the drums. Your band performs at dive bars, dance clubs, ill-reputed cousins, quinceanera after-parties. Each band member contributes songwriting, the singer specializing in riot girl takedowns of ex-boyfriends and the drummer favoring pop-punk infections inspired by story arcs of her abuela's favorite telenovelas. You write protest anthems, the latest being Finger Bang the Police. Your bass needs new strings, but your Taurus needs a new tiny belt, more. Schrodinger's Cat Stevens is still a few hits away from profitability. A preponderance of your band's earnings have spent at least some time inside a hat. Brooklyn. You share an apartment with three Craigslist strangers and sleep in a room with a ceiling that is inexplicably six feet tall. The Craigslisters keep to themselves, their preferred channel of communication being a colorful mosaic of passive-aggressive post-it notes on the refrigerator. You make rent by babysitting for a young couple in Williamsburg and waitressing at a farm-to-table restaurant in Park Slope, where the tips are great, but the manager unrepentantly stares at your body as if it were a slab of organic grass-fed beef. You have no washer or dryer or savings account or car, but you do have a girlfriend, Camila, who is six foot seven and was the starting center for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay's women's basketball team. You prefer sleeping over at her apartment. Whenever she spends the night at your place, she has to duck. Camila is from a small town on the Wisconsin-Minnesota border and has a thick Midwestern accent. She calls drinking fountains bubblers and Coca-Cola pop. After college, she entered into the WNBA draft but wasn't selected, watched the big names stride to the podium for handshakes, speeches, and photo ops in round one on her living room television, and the smaller names flash on the screen in rounds two and three until the final flashing name was followed by a commercial about achieving one's dreams via energy drinks, and Camila wrapped her long, spidery arms around her mom and cried. After the draft, Camila considered playing overseas in Australia or Serbia or Turkey, but lingering knee problems persuaded her to instead pursue her other great love, acting, in New York. Her mom thought she was crazy and said, what are you going to audition for? The tree in One Tree Hill? But Camila worked with a dialect coach on performing her lines with a non-regional accent and has been getting regular voiceover work, providing the English language dubs for Japanese animes and South American telenovelas and absurdly plotted Eastern European porn. Though she's not a star, she's still always the center of attention on the subway. Tourists stare at her, 
small children point and giggle, homeless panhandlers become flustered and forget what they're supposed to say after, ladies and gentlemen, I am not high on crack. Camila doesn't mind. She says what can she do, shrink? She lives in a Long Island city loft where the rent isn't criminal and the ceilings are as high as a cathedral's. You are afraid of the dark. When you were a child, the dark terrified you because of what it concealed. Demons in the closet, witches at the window, monsters beneath the bed. But now, the dark haunts you because of what it implies. The void, the absence of being, the dissolution to nothingness, the conclusion of time. You sleep with a Winnie the Pooh nightlight, even though it drives your husband crazy. Grip his arm tightly to reassure yourself of your continued existence, right before you close your eyes. When your husband is away on business, you make him call before you go to bed, and you fall asleep with a phone against your ear. Your husband doing play-by-play of a West Coast basketball game, or singing along to the hotel clock radio, or reading random passages from a Gideon Bible. Curry kicks it out to green, says your husband over the phone. Bebopalula, she's my baby. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Thompson with a runner. Do Ron 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 to do Ron Ron. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do not appear. The Oracle Arena is on their feet. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. you want to see if the consort or the jade emperor will ever win the heart of the man she loves. Every time you do laundry, there's at least one item of clothing that catches you by surprise. 
a sari, a ruffled swim skirt, a feather boa, a pair of leopard print pants. Did you buy them? Did you steal them? Did you make them? You mix your colors with your whites and colds with your warms and never read the instructions on your clothes tags because you prefer to conduct your life with reckless abandon. The consort of the Jade Emperor weeps inconsolably into her silk pillow as you remove a bath towel from the dryer and press it against her cheek. The consort was weeping into her silk pillow two weeks ago, too. History repeats itself, said Karl Marx, whose manifesto is sandwiched between The Devil Wears Prada and A Brief History of Time in your bedside bookshelf. First is tragedy, second is farce. has free and reduced lunch eligibility and a blatant disregard for human life and a smoking hot girlfriend named Twiz who's always sucking on licorice sticks. As with all major developments regarding your boyfriend, you learn of the race via a spirited two-and-a-half-minute musical number in which Duck's pals impart the race's time, date, and location and three-part harmony while dancing on school lunch tables, leaving the cafeteria ladies to collect all the lunch trays that errant cartwheels and grand jetés have sent clattering to the ground. You are sympathetic to the struggle of the cafeteria ladies. Maybe they would feel better if they joined in for a step-kick, step-touch now and then. You've never seen the ladies sing or dance, but assume they must perform the occasional number at home. Who knows where they live? Maybe in the battered shotgun houses surrounding the fairgrounds. Maybe in the second floor apartments above the local diner. Maybe in the valley where all those TV weathermen keep getting busted for solicitation. Maybe with the Mexicans on the other side of the dry river bed near Dead Man's Curve. Your AP physics teacher, lecturing on Heisenberg's uncertainty principle as you doodle pictures of duck drag racing in the margins of your science notebook, almost never sings. In fact, there is something wrong, medically, with his voice. He croaks out his lectures, relies heavily on chalk illustrations and projected transparencies, Electrons, photons, gamma ray microscopes, Planck's relation. He still wears his tap shoes, though, just in case. Roper Ducky, I love you so much, you whisper as your teacher rasps out an explanation of the impossibility of simultaneously measuring the location and momentum of a subatomic particle with absolute precision. You start to profess your love for duck and song, but your teacher silences you with a stern glare. You can't afford to 
get on his bad side. You want to get into Stanford or UC Berkeley, and admissions are extremely competitive. universe, Schrodinger's Cat Stevens has a Friday evening gig at Churchill's in Little Haiti. Nine other punk bands are playing, three of them from out of town, two of the local bands coincidentally sharing the same name, which is Gloria Stefan Must Die. Your most recent rehearsal was a disaster, the lead singer and guitarist flubbing all her lyrics and forgetting the difference between a C and G major chord and simultaneously ruining a pedalboard power supply and a bottle of post-work Merlot. She did a great job with everyone's hair and makeup, though. Your drummer looks like a zombie Diana Ross. You look like the bastard kin of Frankenstein's monster and Celia Cruz. After shrugging off the persistent panhandlers in the Churchill's parking lot, you throw your Fender P-Bass near the side of the stage, order a Guinness, and catch up with the regulars. Irish Nikki is there, and Jesse Jackson, the singer, not the Rainbow Coalitionist, and the guy who used to ride around Lincoln Road with a rooster on his handlebars, and your ex-boyfriend Carl, who is playing tambourine in the second of two iterations of Gloria Stefan Must Die. Carl's such a dumbass. You can't believe you once wrote a song about him titled, You Make Me Want to Consider Getting a Joint Checking Account. You hate Churchill's, but you love it too. The secondhand smoke, the terrible sound system, the FEMA site bathrooms, the televised rugby. Carl slinks away to deliver a PPR to his new girlfriend, the lead singer of the electro doo group Borders Without Borders. The original Gloria Stefan Must Die performs and it's impossible to discern anything their dreadlocked frontman is singing or saying. A biker hustles a hipster in pool. A 50-year-old with fake hair hits on a 20-year-old with a fake ID. A homeless man with an American flag painted on his guitar leaps on stage in between sets of the two rival Gloria Stefan Must Dies and says, Ladies and gentlemen, I am not high on crack, and is immediately chased away by a bartender brandishing a lead pipe. Who's running the sound tonight, says your band's drummer, and your singer says, Your mom. your voiceover man becomes the voice of an adorable cartoon kitten who peddles life insurance in a national television ad campaign. Just a dollar a day meow, says the kitten, rubbing against the leg of his owner, ensures your family's happiness forever. You and your husband don't have life insurance. You feel uncomfortable even thinking about it, are unwilling to concede that the person you love more than anyone else in the world can die at any moment. As often as possible, you try to traffic uncertainties, government bonds versus the stock market, paychecks versus the lottery, a burdened hand 
versus one in the bush, but insurance is all about probabilities. A male lifetime smoker has a one in six chance of developing lung cancer. An obese woman with diabetes has a four in five chance of developing heart disease. A U.S. citizen has a one in 303 chance of dying in a car accident, a one in 306 chance of being fatally shot, a one in 84,079 chance of being killed by a bolt of lightning. Who wants to think about any of that? You'd much rather look at pictures of animals and human clothing and consult your gossip mags as to who's in love or in court or on crystal meth. But wait, there's more, says your husband softly through the wall. This offer won't last long. Battered and deep fried to perfection. They called Mahatma Gandhi a man of peace, but this summer, they were wrong. In one universe, you have a first date at a trendy bar called Closed for Renovation. The bar's walls are adorned with license plates from all 50 states, as well as additional states that don't exist. One plate is from East Dakota, the Butte State. Another is from Mississippi, the Greener State. Another is from Missouri, the DME State. Another is from American Columbia, the plate emblazoned with a cartoon bald eagle high-fiving a Canadian loon. Your friends coached you before you left your apartment. Don't discuss politics. Don't bring up your ex-boyfriend. Don't talk about how you hate your job or lost your mom or have six months before your driver's license is reinstated. Don't mention your time in the hospital after your roommate found you unconscious on your bedroom floor. What can I talk about, you think, waiting for your date to arrive? You are a dog person. Your body type is athletic. Your sign is Aries, and your income is humiliating, and your ethnicity is other. You think about what would happen if you pulled the emergency brake on the subway. You're good at paying for small items with exact change. Your favorite book is the B67-B69 bus timetable in PDF format. Your favorite film is How to Replace the Carburetor on a Honda HRX 217 lawnmower on YouTube. You check the time on your phone and read Closed for Renovation's drink menu. There's a cocktail called the Admiral made of vermouth, bitters, and raspberry syrup, and another called Last Tango in Akron made of gin, mint, Aperol, and Fruit Loops, and another called Non-Penetrative Sex on the Beach, made of vodka, peach schnapps, wood shavings, and twine. You order a club soda, and your date appears at the bar entrance. Oxford shirt, dark jeans, Chuck Taylor all-stars, hairstyle requiring gel. You wave him over. Nice to meet you, says your date kissing you on the cheek. 
Sorry I didn't recognize you at first. I expected you to be taller. It's okay, you say. I expected me to be taller, too. In one universe, one of your Craigslist roommates starts dating a girl named Peaches who likes to hang out in the communal areas of your apartment, completely naked. Peaches says clothing is a fascist construct that alienates us from our true selves. The anonymous post-it note on your refrigerator says, Hey roomies, the human body is a beautiful thing, but also so are pants, so let's try to always wear pants. Your girlfriend Camila isn't wild about peaches either, which you can understand. None of Peach's nude activities are particularly erotic. Studying for the GREs, reading The Economist, making peanut butter and honey sandwiches, watching Mets games, and America's Got Talent. But you wouldn't want an attractive woman lounging around your girlfriend's living room with a visible vulva, either. Come winter, though, you anticipate Peaches will have to give in to the fascism of clothing as the heating in your apartment isn't very good and the average room temperature is somewhere between Meat Locker and Siberia. Until then, you tell Camila that you solemnly vow to never leave her for another girl whose name is the plural form of a kind of fruit. You wish you could have known Camila back when she was in college, so you could have watched her play basketball in person. You don't tell her this, but sometimes, late at night, you watch highlights of her old games on YouTube. She was so amazing. There aren't many available clips of her, so you've seen all of them at least 20 times. In your favorite clip, Green Bay is playing Loyola in Chicago. A Loyola player on a fast break attempts what should be an easy layup when Camila materializes out of nowhere and swats the ball violently into the stands, the Loyola player clutching her head in stunned disbelief, your girlfriend unleashing a primal scream, the few Green Bay fans in attendance absolutely losing their minds. For one half second in grainy 320 by 240 pixel resolution, Camila's tenacity and God-given talent and thousands of hours spent toiling in the gym coalesce into the closest thing to magic you've ever seen, and it kills you that you never got to witness this magic up close, that barring some unforeseen miracle, you never will. That the one thing your girlfriend was seemingly born to do is something she'll never do again. She says she's happy to move on and start her life's next chapter in New York, but you know she has to miss the game. The squeak of the hard court, the swish of the net, the adrenaline rush of competition. Has to fantasize now and then about some alternate reality where she's dominating the paint in Serbia or Australia or across the St. Croix River from her hometown for the Minnesota Lynx and the WNBA. How could she not wonder, what if? What if she'd made that last second jumper against Youngstown State? What if Green Bay had beaten LSU in the tournament her senior year? 
What if her name had flashed on the screen on draft day? What if her creaky knees hadn't failed her? What if? Hey roomies, Peaches says in the kitchen, reading from a post-it note on the refrigerator. I know it's hot outside, but let's please be considerate of how not everyone may be fully comfortable with uncovered personal areas making regular contact with the recliner and the dining room chairs and the throw pillows that were passed down to me by my great aunt Marlene after she died of emphysema. Peaches then laughs hysterically and makes her own hollandaise sauce for Eggs Benedict, naked as the day she was born. Duck 
will be racing Zito around Dead Man's Curve in the same Corvette Stingray where you let him get to third base last Saturday at Heavy Petting Point. Oh, Ripper Ducky, you sigh, and someone plays a walking bass line on a Fender P bass, prompting your classmates to rhythmically snap their fingers, and Mr. Feldman to spice up his aisle roaming with a few heel turns. Meanwhile, I remain by the vending machines and half-heartedly snap the fingers on my left hand as my right hand operates a calculator in a futile attempt to determine the position and momentum of a photon of red light. you to run, not walk, to your nearest Hyundai dealership on your sister's television. You hear him instruct you to turn on the light to light 98.3 on the radio at your office. You hear him gravely intone, in a world where shadows have shadows, before the feature presentation at the AMC 24. constantly from the backyard. One of the dogs is named Baby. Another is Buddy. Another is Peaches. Another is Carl. Even with the soundproofing in your husband's home studio, the dog's yelps bleed into his recordings, and so he orders an anti-barking device online that he activates the moment UPS delivers it to your door. Disappointingly, the device doesn't dissuade the dogs from barking, but it does cause a wide variety of birds to fall from the sky and land on your lawn and roof. Cardinals, blue jays, geese, woodpeckers, nuthatches, sapsuckers, owls, Bunting, I exclaim, discovering a bird deposited onto my front stoop across the street from you. Look at that remarkable plumage. I marvel at the bunting's rainbow-colored feathers. The dogs keep barking, and the birds keep raining from the sky. Because you don't really drink anymore, but 
the reason you don't drink anymore is one of the topics your friends advised you not to discuss on a first date. So here you are in a summer dress and heels beneath a framed photo of Putin celebrating an all-time personal high score in skee-ball. You don't drink coffee either, but perhaps next time you can suggest a meeting at a cafe. Maybe we can get coffee sometime, you've heard guys say to your more attractive co-workers during lunch breaks from the office. Coffee doesn't have to mean coffee, just like sometime doesn't have to mean sometime. The drink menu is in both English and Russian and features a picture of Putin feeding a sugar cube to a miniature pony. There's a cocktail called Adderall made of scotch, lemon, honey, and dextroamphetamine, and another called Sweet Home Kamachatka made of bourbon, Campari, orange fago, and Thousand Island dressing, and another called My Heart Will Go On made of cognac, triple sack, shoe leather, and a widow's tears. In the hospital, they served you jello minus the shot and fruit juice and tiny plastic cups topped with metallic foil. Your roommate watched badly dubbed foreign soap operas with you during visitor hours and the psychiatrist took your mental health history and adjusted your medication and the other patient in your room slept for 18 hours a day and stared silently at the ceiling for the other six. In the afternoons, you were shepherded into a communal area for an hour of arts and crafts, and you struck up a friendship with a clinically depressed theoretical physicist who taught you how to make an origami dodecahedron and introduced you to the concept of quantum suicide, which he explained like this. Imagine you're holding a gun to your head. The gun is connected to a machine that measures the spin of a tiny quantum particle called a quark. If the quark is observed to be spinning clockwise, the gun will fire, but if the quark spins counterclockwise, the gun will merely produce a harmless click. The spin of the quark is random. There's a roughly 50-50 chance that the bullet will either leave or remain in its chamber. In one interpretation of quantum mechanics, the tiny quark that decides whether you live or die exists in all states at once until it is observed. That is, it spins both clockwise and counterclockwise until the machine's measurement forces it to make a decision and choose a single direction. According to this view, the Copenhagen interpretation, the machine will eventually measure the quark as spinning clockwise, and you will blow your brains out, and the thought experiment will be over. But another interpretation, the many-worlds theory, takes the observer out of the equation. The many-worlds theory says the quark's decision actually splits the universe in two. In one universe, the quark spins clockwise, and you pull the trigger and die. And in another universe, the quark spins counterclockwise, and you pull the trigger and live. 
any observers who watched you fire a bullet at point-blank range into your temple are completely unaware of the alternate reality in which you are still alive and kicking and holding the gun against your skull, you can pull the trigger again and again and again, but there will always be a universe where you die and a universe where you survive to hear the beautiful Check the time on your phone, and your date is ten minutes late. Yet, unbeknownst to you, I've stood you up, have instead gotten drinks with a girl whose profile name is Whistle While You Twerk. You order a Coca-Cola, which, where you're from, is called Pop, and send me a text. You still coming? Which I won't see until much later in the evening, after Whistle While You Twerk asks me a variation on the same question. Your coke arrives, and you drink it with a straw, like you drink your hospital juice, and you pass the time by looking at the framed photos of Vladimir Putin on the walls. Putin playing laser tag. Putin building a snow fort. Putin self-applying eyeshadow. Putin cradling a beautiful newborn girl in his arms. I start dating one of your Craigslist roommates, whom I met on the B67 bus to Kensington. Your girlfriend goes back home to Wisconsin for a week to see her family, and so you spend a lot of time smoking pot and watching Mets games and America's Got Talent with Peaches and her boyfriend. My boyfriend has given up writing post-it note dress code reminders on the refrigerator, but bitches to me about peaches constantly. I don't think she's so bad, though. He needs to put everything in perspective. I once had a roommate whose boyfriend used up all our hot water with Lawrence Arabia-length showers and chronically urinated in a recycling bin and set fire to his girlfriend's mattress after falling asleep while trying to light a blunt. So Peaches wants to be all National Geographic. So what? She's clean, she's quiet, and she makes an undeniable hollandaise sauce. A little full frontal nudity is a small price to pay for the best eggs benedict this side of the BQE. You talk to your girlfriend on the phone every night she's away, lying supine on your mattress, staring at your six-foot-tall ceiling. She's your first love, your first everything. Before her, there were only unrequited co-ed crushes, fleeting study hall daydreams, purely theoretical G-train reveries. You wonder if it always feels this special when you enter into a relationship with someone, whether she's your first, or fifth, or twentieth, or hundredth, or if there's something truly singular about your first love, first kiss, first night spent in another's arms. The only way to know for sure is to be with someone else, but that would mean betraying a love that might be the truest you'll ever know. People always talk about the one, but when you've found the one, how do you discern if they're really the one, or just 
the one minus one as perfect as they might seem as wonderful as they might make you feel what if there's someone even more perfect and wonderful for you out there and then if you leave the one minus one for the one how do you tell if they're really the one or if they're the one minus one and the one minus one was really the one minus two but you can't think that way right you'd go crazy your love life can't be an infinite series it has to be bounded it has to contain a discrete beginning and an end maybe the one is merely the first person you meet who satisfies all the minimum requirements for the one eligibility and you agree to call off the search for any superior ones because you're tired of searching and you don't want to go insane your stomach growls post-smoke session demanding cabin crunch so you leave your bedroom for the pantry and find peaches her boyfriend and me watching a dubbed chinese soap opera on tv what happened to the mets game you ask and peaches says the game went black during a rain delay and for some reason switched over to this goofy asian drama about the consort of the jade emperor on screen, the Emperor's consort weeps into a silk pillow and laments the love that can never be hers with your girlfriend's voice. That's weird, you think. She never told you she did the English dub for this show. A soap opera goes to commercial and an adorable kitten tries to sell you life insurance. But none of you are cat people. None of you are dog people either. What kind of person are you? Wouldn't you like to know? In one universe, you come home with me after Schrodinger's Cat Stevens' 2am set at Churchill's. You play in the open-air stage out back to an audience of three, two of three fully conscious, and I buy you a series of Guinnesses, you hand your drummer your car keys, and we take the Dolphin, the Tamiami Trail, all the way west to southwest 187th Avenue, which at nighttime looks like the edge of the known world. On the drive home in my hand-me-down Civic, we talk about where we're from and what bands we like and why we moved to Miami as a man on the radio tells us to turn on the light to light 98.3. One of my bumper stickers says, student driver. Another says, if you can bleed this, thank a leecher. Another says, my other car is an honor student at Felix Varela Senior High. So where does the name Schrodinger's Cat Stevens come from, I ask, as we pass the airport and the Palmetto and the Miami International Mall? Well, so Schrodinger was this Austrian dude, you say, and he was a physicist, and he had this cat. But it wasn't a real cat, it was a hypothetical cat. And his hypothetical cat was stuck in a hypothetical box with a Geiger counter, radioactive material, death machine for one hour. If the Geiger counter sensed that an atom of the radioactive material had decayed and 
there was a 50-50 chance of this happening over the course of an hour, the death machine triggered a flask of acid to shatter, and that was that for Schrodinger's cat. But if no atoms decayed, the box would be opened an hour later, and Schrodinger's kitty would be alive and well, a hypothetical can of tuna waiting for her hypothetical dinner. But so the weird thing about this cat is, and I, I don't entirely understand why our drummer tried to explain it to us, but we were all really, really high. Because the tiny particles that set off the death machine operate in this goofy way where they exist in two states at once, like they can both decay and not decay at the same time, technically Schrodinger's little kitty is both dead and alive at the same time too. It's not until we open the box and see the cat for ourselves that she truly dies, or truly survives. Yeah, but who's Cat Stevens, I say. Oh, you say. You've never had to explain Cat Stevens before. So first he was this British dude with an unwieldy Greek name, and then he was Cat Stevens, and then he was Yusuf Islam, and then he was just Yusuf. But to most people, he'll always be Cat Stevens. We arrive at my place a little after four in the morning. You're feeling the full effect of the Guinnesses and require my assistance to make it to my front door, and I set your base against the entryway wall and lead you through a narrow hallway that exits to a backyard bordering the dark periphery of the Everglades. I want to show you something, I say, and you assume you know what the something I want to show you is, and have no major objections, but then I grab your wrist and lead you not into my bedroom, but rather through a small crack in my backyard fence, straight into the thick of the swamp. After 15 minutes of trucking blindly through the dense growth of slash pine and saw palmetto and royal palm, as you suffer bug bites and minor lacerations and tell yourself that the next time a man says he wants to show you something, the correct answer is no. You emerge from the swamp into a suburban backyard, seemingly identical to the one from which you started your journey. Wait, did we just walk in one big circle, you say? But I don't respond, instead leading you to a large picture window that looks into a candlelit dining room where you see yourself being served Merlot and Eggs Benedict by your ex-boyfriend, Carl. What the hell, you think, as you watch Carl fill your doppelganger's wine glass on the same oak table that used to be in Carl's dining room before he sold the majority of his furniture on Craigslist for weed money. Is that me? Is that Carl? Is that Eggs Benedict? this dude from Churchill's just murder me out in the Everglades? Is he the devil? Is he Jesus? Is he the ghost of Christmas past? You stare at your other self through the window, watch yourself drink your Merlot and gesticulate with your fork and laugh uproariously at something Carl says, and you are certain now that you are either dead or dreaming. You hope it's dreaming. Hope I didn't slice you to bits in the swamp. Why 
would I slice you to bits after I was so polite and you so tenderly caressed my pant leg as we turned on the light to light 98.3? Do you want to go back? I ask. As Carl looks at the other you the way he looked at his new squeeze from Borders Without Borders earlier in the night, the way he looks at any hot young thing in punk rock black and glam rock eyeshadow, the way he used to look at you back before he stopped inspiring your best songs and smoked away all of his furniture, and despite your lingering resentment and disdain, you look at him now the way the other you looks at him, with affection, joy, devotion, desire, and you can't remember the last time you looked at Carl like that, at anyone like that, if you ever looked at anyone like that. Why didn't Carl ever make Eggs Benedict for the real you, you think? If you are the real you, and if you're not the real you, who are you? Yes. I want to go back, you say, and I grab your mosquito-bitten wrist and lead you again to the heart of the swamp. Contact with hornets, wasps, and bees. 
is 1 in 71,107. You try to distract yourself by watching television, but it doesn't help. Your husband's voice on show promos, car commercials, energy drink commercials, campaign ads, a film trailer for the new Michael Bay film in which your husband warns in a gravelly baritone, Jesus of Nazareth is back, and this time, it's personal. You turn off the TV, check your text messages for the thousandth time, and wonder if something happened to your husband's phone. Maybe it was lost, stolen, broken, dropped in a toilet or storm drain or fountain of cheese fondue. You compose an email with the subject heading, Babe, where are you? Flack it is important, and click send. Then refresh your Yahoo account every 30 seconds until 2 a.m. when you pass out on your living room couch. The lights still on, your work clothes still on, your laptop still open, the neighbor's dogs howling insatiably at some secret sign of danger. Bass line, 
a drum set backbeat, a reverb-soaked Fender Strat. The adjacent motorists climb onto the tops of their own cars, like in the music video for R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts, and start singing in unison, Dead Man's Curve, Dead Man's Curve, as a teen boy in a black leather jacket and tight blue jeans leaps under the hood of your car, and does the skate, and the pony, and a teen girl in a striped one-piece bathing suit hops onto your Taurus from the back of a T-Bird, and perfectly mirrors the boys every step. You honk your horn, roll down your window, and scream at the teens to get off your car, but they pay you no attention. Why are they singing? Why are they dancing? Where did all these beach balls come from? What the hell is Dead Man's Curve? The sirens get louder and louder. The stoplights cycle futilely. The teens on the hood of your Taurus keep smiling, singing, twisting, and jerking as the traffic-jammed masses do the monkey, the shimmy, the Egyptian, the swim. five or more, please call ahead. The bar is located on the top of a double-decker bus, and thus its street address is variable. There's a DJ spinning acid jazz remixes of Cat Stevens songs on the lower deck, and waitresses dressed like pin-up Amelia Earhart's on the upper deck, and a bouncer checking the IDs of pedestrians in the crosswalk, waving them inside whenever the bus is stopped at a light. On the bus's sides are large advertisements for a quantum moisturizing cream that claims to rejuvenate skin down to the most theoretical subatomic particle. Because true beauty is neutrinos deep, says the ad, featuring the cover models of the American Journal of Physics much anticipated annual swimsuit edition. Your date arrives on time for once. His name is Miguel, and he shows up with a silk bandana and a fresh-cut rose between his teeth, but no shirt. He kisses you on the cheek, touches the rose to your lips, and says, A beautiful rose for the flower of my heart. On his profile, Miguel listed his occupation as Hombre de Misterio. His interests were pasión, secretos, mentiras, y amor. My love, says Miguel, my life, my light, my heart. It is no longer safe for us here. Don Cortez's men are everywhere. What, you say? Shh, says Miguel. Shh. Speak softly, my little sparrow. Don Cortez's men... They listen to us, even now. You have no idea who Don Cortez is, or his men, or why Miguel is calling you his heart within seconds of meeting you, or why he isn't wearing a shirt. Maybe this isn't Miguel at all. Maybe he's someone else's date. Those profile pictures can be so misleading. Tonight, at midnight, we ride for the Pampas, says Miguel. We will build a new life there. 
you and me together, my sweetheart, my dove, my little bird. There's something weird about Miguel, possibly not Miguel's lips. You can't quite place it. It's like they're somehow not matching what he's actually saying. Maybe it's some rare type of speech impediment. Maybe it's an illusion caused by a neural altering side effect of your medication. A waiter comes by and you order a club soda while Miguel orders the nectar of desire, which the waiter says is not a real drink. As the bar cuts off a taxi, the cabbie flipping the bus driver, the bird, the DJ downstairs playing an acid jazz remix of Cat Stevens' Peace Train. Meanwhile, the bouncer hops off the bus, sets down two cordons strung with velvet rope, and checks IDs of pedestrians in the crosswalk. A girl in a ruffled swim skirt, a girl in a Gloria Stefan Must Die t-shirt, a six-foot-seven Amazon in a basketball jersey, a consort of the Jade Emperor, a girl who isn't wearing any clothes. For the occasional flash of lightning, you are enveloped in darkness. You are alone, your husband on a business trip, and your hands shake as you struggle to find your cell phone in the pitch black so you can dial him in the hope that he's still awake to comfort you during the storm. Hello, says a voice on the other end of the line after you locate your phone on the floor connected to a no longer functioning wall outlet. But it isn't your husband's voice. It's a woman's. Hello? Who is this? You say. Who is this? Says the voice. Thunder explodes and you reflexively pull the covers over your head. The cell phone screen dimly lighting your bedroom sanctuary with an eerie greenish glow. Where's my husband? You say, cowering beneath the covers. Let me talk to my husband. Your husband, says the voice, which sounds familiar, although you can't place why. I think you have the wrong number. Baby, who's that? You hear me say in the background. Baby, you think. Your hands start to shake even more violently. You can barely hold on to your phone. That's him, you say frantically. That's my husband. Let me talk to my husband. Sorry, wrong number, says the voice, and then the call is disconnected. You call your husband again, but are immediately directed to the automated message on his voicemail, and the thunderclaps grow louder and more frequent as you hysterically keep pressing redial and pray that your husband finally picks up the phone. Sorry, wrong number, says the voice, echoing in your head. Where have you heard that voice before? The wind and rain pick up, and you hear something bang against your window. A tree branch? A hailstone? A shingle from a neighbor's roof? Please pick up. Please pick up. Please pick up. You whisper. 
whisper to your phone. There's another thunderclap and then additional banging, your window bombarded by more and more unknown objects. You try pressing redial for the hundredth time, but your hand is shaking too uncontrollably and the phone drops onto your bed. Sorry, wrong number. Who is she? How do you know her? Why is she answering your husband's phone at two o'clock in the morning? The banging is steady now, rhythmic, whap, whap, whap against your bedroom window like the beating of some terrifying ritual drum. Whap, whap, whap. You summon the courage to lift the covers from your head and look at your window and a flash of lightning reveals the culprits of the outdoor cacophony, a torrent of displaced animals crashing headlong against the side of your house. Squirrels, chipmunks, dogs, cats, frogs, possums, beautiful rainbow-colored birds. You scream, duck back beneath the covers, and curl, whimpering into a fetal position. And as the animals keep raining against your window, whap, 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 it occurs to you, finally, that the reason the strange woman's voice is familiar is because it's your own. As you sit on one of the Econoline's bench seats and sip on a club soda, your date five minutes late, a Corvette Stingray and Jaguar XKE zoom past the bar at 100 plus miles per hour, and the Stingray skids out into the front wall of a Pollo Tropical. Gasoline, carbonated soda, and chicken grease spilling onto the floor in the aftermath of the explosive crash. A police cruiser arrives, then an ambulance, then a coroner. Another you runs toward the scene of the accident in a pink cardigan and poodle skirt, but is held back by the MDPD, the other you screaming and clawing at the officers with long, rose-colored fingernails. No one sings. No one does the Watusi. No one does the mashed potato. No one does the twist. You go on a date at a bar called Additional Seating in the Rear. 
The bar is located in the nosebleed section of City Field. The Mets playing the Phillies in game two of a doubleheader. A six foot seven girl approaches you and asks if your dating profile name is I've been twerking on the railroad, and you say no. Really? She says. You look exactly like her. You shrug your shoulders and say you're sorry. Those profile pictures can be so misleading. The bartender walks up and down the aisles of City Field, mixing cocktails named after baseball terms. The suicide squeeze, the earned run average, the infield fly rule, the player to be named later, and tossing them to fans several rows away. The tumblers and snifters and martini glasses frequently shattering against fiberglass bleachers and concrete steps. Squirrels start falling from the sky during the top of the fifth, and you put on a poncho and wait out the squirrel delay as a young woman leisurely walks across the outfield, naked as a jaybird, gingerly stepping over the stunned fallen rodents, the curious nude beauty, the slowest streaker who has ever lived. You go on a date in a bar called Liquor License Pending. The bar has framed photos of Mahatma Gandhi and lighter moments on the walls and is located on the border of Mississippi and East Dakota, the jukebox and ATM machine in Mississippi, the dartboard and restrooms in East Dakota. On the East Dakota side, a woman who looks exactly like you is on a date with a guy who looks exactly like your date, except she and her date are smiling and laughing and clasping each other's hands, while on the Mississippi side, you and your date fumble nervously with the drink menus and fall into several minute spans of awkward silence. How does she know how to act, you think, as you watch the other you place a maraschino cherry in her date's open mouth? How does she know what to say? On the Mississippi side, a TV shows Mahatma Gandhi with an acoustic guitar and a 1970s beard singing, I'm being followed by a moon shadow. And on the East Dakota side, the Mahatma wears a paisley bandana and torn blue jeans and sings, In the jungle, welcome to the jungle, watch it bring you to your knees. date in a bar called Please Drink and Drive Responsibly. The bar is located in a small utility closet where the bottled beers are kept on ice in a mop bucket and the ceiling is only six feet tall. You stand in between two hunched over men in the corner and a woman who is your mirror image grabs you and asks what you've done with her husband. I'm sorry, you say, but you've got the wrong you. But the woman won't leave you alone, clutches the lapels of your blouse and screams again and again, what have you done with my husband, until a bouncer drags her out of the bar. Your date arrives, shirtless and 
says it is no longer safe here. Don Cortez's men are everywhere. I know, you say, the movement of your lips no longer matching the syllables that they produce. I know. In one universe, you go on a date in a bar called Experienced Cocktail Waitress Needed. The bar is located in the heart of the Everglades, and its staff of cocktail waitresses has been decimated by alligators. You flip through the drink menu. There's a cocktail called We'll Always Have Cleveland, made of Bacardi, Grenadine, student loan debt, drywall, and another called Dental Damn Yankee, made of absolute vanilla, inadequacy, misapprehension, and regret. An an identical twin you never knew you had accosts you and asks what you've been doing with her ex-boyfriend, Carl. In one universe, you have a bumper sticker that says, reinforced concrete doesn't harder. In one universe, you have a bumper sticker that says, my other car is aborted every 26 seconds. In one universe, you wonder what would have happened if your roommate had never found you unconscious on your bedroom floor. Would you have died? Would you have still survived? Would you have suffered irreparable brain damage and spent the remainder of your days in a nebulous borderland between life and death? How would your death have affected the world? If you had never existed, would it have changed the course of human endeavor in any noticeable way at all? If you could go back in time and correct all the terrible decisions you've made, how dramatically would it alter your life? Could you live another life where you're happy, where you're unmedicated, where you're not sipping club soda in bars with framed photos of Amelia Earhart in lighter moments on the walls? What if everyone could correct their own miscalculations and errors? Is there a possible world free of disappointment, free of racism, sexism, violence, cruelty, war? Or is all of this suffering inevitable? Are we forever victims of our own selves? Is the best case scenario and worst case scenario for humanity the exact same scenario. In one universe, Cat Stevens is placed inside a hypothetical box with a Geiger counter, radioactive material, and a clerk of the court for one hour. If an atom of the radioactive material decays, the clerk of the court changes Cat Stevens' name to Yusuf Islam, and if no atoms decay, Cat Stevens remains Cat Stevens. In one universe, Cat Stevens will always be Cat Stevens, no matter what the radioactive particles say. In one universe, a tiny subatomic particle spins clockwise, and in another, the particle spins counterclockwise, and in another, you are both dead and alive, but can't tell the difference between the two. In one universe, you love me. In one universe, I love you. In one universe, you hold a phone to your ear during a terrible storm, and I tell you, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, and in one universe, I tell you, take me down to the paradise city where the grass is green and the girls are pretty, and in one universe, I tell you, 
this offer won't last long as you close your eyes and succumb to the inevitable blackening of sleep. I see a zillion cars roll by. I don't forgive their intentions this time. I'll forgive when I'm ready to forget. Let me tell you that it's not quite yet. I'm a victim of the soul that I've grown. I've only reaped from the seeds that I've sown. I don't claim that I am not guilty I have done as others oh so willfully I acknowledge the fault of the earth When it shakes it will feel like a bird I can't relate to the love or the pain But the feeling must at least be the same You are pretty and I like your smile Will you come? You can stay for with the 